right, take your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. I seriously considered tonight preaching about how Noah built the ark. Because I think we might need it by the end of this service at the rate it was coming down beforehand. I know we are still in our series, Healer of the Broken, but if you've ever had the opportunity to be a preacher, uh, you know that it is when God gives you a message, you want to preach it so bad you can't wait. (laughs) Uh, And uh, the other night I was laying in my bed. I don't sleep well at night, so I have great difficulty falling asleep, so I usually just lay there and think. And I was thinking about how we need revival, and I was trying to figure out what steps would we take to see a revival. You know, I've always wanted to be a part of one. I've always heard uh, uh, stories of them. I've heard of how, you know, we study those that happened in the Bible, but, you know, I've, I've always wanted to to feel the presence of God so real that it just, that that you people who were wrong before Him fell down and people who were right before Him praised His name. I've wanted to be a part of that so badly in my life. And as I laid there in my bed, I began to think of, you know, why don't we see revival? What are the things that we're doing incorrectly or poorly that are hindering revival? And so not searching for a sermon by any means, which I have to do often because I preach pretty regular, I just laid there and the Lord gave me four points. Now, I don't know if they're going to be good, but He gave them to me and they helped me. So tonight, I offer them to you. We're going to talk about four actions that extinguish revival. Jonah chapter 3, the Bible will read the whole chapter The Bible says in verse 1, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying... Now the reason this is the second time God's word comes to Jonah is because as you know and as you learned in Sunday school class, he didn't do what he told him the first time. So now God's word has to come to Jonah again. The Bible says in verse 2, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it, the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. Now I don't know, uh, this was not planned, I had not planned on saying this, but I don't know what you call a revival in someone's personal life if not doing things quicker for God's honor. I mean, something that would have taken a normal person three days to do, Jonah's now so on fire, it took him one day to do it. And so Jonah uh, is now on fire for God. Verse 4, And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and set in ashes, 
And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Now, if you have grown up in church at all, if you have spent any time in Sunday school class, or if you've ever read your Bible, or ever watched the American Bible Challenge with Jeff Foxworthy as the host, you've probably heard a little bit about Jonah. Now, there are some things in Jonah that are make for a great flannograph. Man, I mean, they make for great teaching to young kids about the whale, about it swallowing Jonah. And scientists say, oh, there's never been a whale with an esophagus large enough to swallow a man. I think that's why the Bible said, and God prepared a fish. Because this fish has an enlarged esophagus. And God prepared it for this purpose... And God's plan was amazing. And so it makes great teaching to little Sunday school churchgoers. But what often gets overlooked in Jonah is the revival that is seen. I mean, there is a revival here that is one of the greatest in the Bible, and yet we rarely hear about it at all. I mean, Jonah shows up, and I don't know if he had three points in a poem and a prayer. I don't know what Jonah had, but I look in verse uh, uh, number uh, four. This was Jonah's sermon. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Oh, what power. Dad, how awesome would it be if we could come up and speak one sentence and revival break out? That would be a good deal. But we, we study hours and hours and three people come to the altar. <laughs> but nonetheless, Jonah said just a few words, but God had his way with these people. And he worked in the heart of them and God allowed a revival to take place in the heart of some wicked people. And I don't know about you, but I want to see revival. I've heard of, of great revivals uh, down through the centuries, I was reading about a revival in 1859 in Ulster, Ireland. Now, to, to, a lot of times what happens is we think that revival could never happen here in America because we're too far gone. I mean, we think that people are too wicked and, man, our, our country's turned too far away from God. Let me read to you three ministers' opinions of Ulster, Ireland in 1856. There seemed great coldness and deadness. I had preached the gospel faithfully, earnestly, and plainly for 11 years, yet it was not known to me that a single individual had been converted. A man preaches for 11 years, never sees somebody make a decision for Christ. Another minister said the congregation was in a most unsatisfactory state. In fact, altogether Laodicean. Another minister said, What alarmed me most was the indisposition, almost hostility, 
of the people to meetings for prayer. They seemed mostly to think that they were well enough and that it was unnecessarily disturbing them. I had never been so desponding or distressed as during the weeks immediately preceding the awakening. I had almost ceased to hope. I felt as if I was almost alone, no one mourning or praying with me. And I told my people I was appalled at their determination to have no prayer meetings and that we would not have a drop of the shower of grace which was going round but would be left utterly reprobate. Three men of God absolutely at the end of their rope discouraged because they had proclaimed the gospel over and over and over again, and yet nothing happened. Until one day, one man by the, by the name of James McQuicken heard a Baptist missionary by the name of Miss Colville, heard her talking to someone about salvation and what Christ had done for her, and James, as he walked on by, thought this woman had no basis theologically. He thought she was ignorant. And so what he wanted to do was stump her. And he walked up and he said, ma'am, are you a Calvinist? And this was Miss Colville's response. I do not care to talk on mere points of doctrine. I would rather speak of the experience of salvation in the soul. If one were to tell me what he knows of the state of his heart towards God, I think I could tell him whether he knows the Lord Jesus savingly. See, that got in James's crawl. It kind of struck him wrong. And after a few days of conviction, James bowed his head and accepted Christ as his Savior. But this was no run-of-the-mill salvation. You see, James burned up for the Lord. He had a few friends. He talked to one of them. Now, this friend was a churchgoer. His name was Jeremiah Manili. He didn't really know for sure if he was saved or not, although he was faithful to church. And as James spoke with Jeremiah, he could tell the passion. He could tell that something had changed. And so Jeremiah began to more intently study his Bible and he, he, one night he saw God laid a verse on his heart and he slapped his knee and finally said, I got it. And that night he bowed his head and prayed and asked the Lord to save him. While this was going on, Jeremiah got saved. James talked to a name by the man of Robert Carlyle and John Wallace. And with these four novice reprobate sinners, God started a revival. You see, these four young men began to meet weekly. They began to pray. They met in the schoolhouse. Uh, they decided every single Friday they would gather. Now, there were no magnificent plans for it. It was literally just four men gathering around the Word of God, studying the Word of God, and praying. But it was amazing how God used this. You see, they prayed and prayed and prayed that God would do something with them, that God would do something for their country. And for three months, nothing was accomplished. Three months, no one was added to the prayer group until in 1857, they saw their first convert. After this, the pastor jumped on board and began to preach and began to pray with them. 
It was not long till they were hosting prayer meetings with 50 to 100 people. After this, it began to grow, and it grew into the thousands of people. And man was raised up, man after man, preacher after preacher, evangelist after evangelist, was raised up and began to preach here in the country of, uh, of Ireland. It was an amazing thing. These prayer meetings saw absolutely nothing for three months. By the end of the revival, Ireland alone had seen 100,000 people saved. One minister said, It were worth living 10,000 ages in obscurity and reproach to be permitted to engage in the glorious work of the last six months of 1859. Wales saw 100,000 converts added to the church. Scotland had a harvest of 300,000 souls. And England saw an even larger harvest, all because four men began to live for God and pray to God. Now, Catholicism was quite uh, against or opposing the movement. They began to say it was a, 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 a... a demon revival. They began offering holy water, saying that uh, that would protect them from the demon revival that was going on. One Catholic writer in a Dublin newspaper said he would accept the movement as from God if the Bonnet celebration passed without trouble in Durham Street. You see, we don't really know what that is, but the only thing I can compare it to is Mardi Gras. It was when people gathered on one particular street and danced and drank and celebrated. And by the end of it, maulings were taking place, fightings were taking place, things were going crazy. Kind of sounds like Mardi Gras, doesn't it? And this Catholic man says, "If, if I see that on this day when everybody meets and normally does wicked things, if I see that nobody gathers out there for that, I'll believe it's from God. A minister that was there that day, he said these words, There is no party spirit, no orange parade, no beating of drums, no exclamations, to hell with the Pope, no wickedness at all towards the Roman Catholics. Meaning there was no party. God had impacted this area so heavily and so mighty, mightily with His Spirit, nobody showed up for what was a, a, a sinful party time. God did a work in Ireland. Revival is defined as a restoration to life. Consciousness or vigor or even strength. When it comes to religion, it's defined as this. An awakening in a church or community of interest in and care for matters relating to personal religion. An awakening. Sammy Tippett said this, Revival is not the discovery of some new truth. It's the rediscovery of the grand old truth of God's power in and through the cross. Vance Havner says this, Revival is falling in love with Jesus all over again. James A. Stewart said this, Revival is torrents of living water flowing out of the individual believer. You see, these men make it sound so good. I read over 10,000 words.
words of, of revival after a revival, of story after story, of people coming to know Christ, and sinners who have a reprobate mind coming back to Jesus. But we're not seeing that. There are no awakenings anymore. Nothing's happening here. Is it God? I don't think so. I think we stop God's presence. I think we limit or we extinguish revival. Today I simply want to talk to you about four actions that always extinguish revival. In Jonah's life, the first thing we see is a disobeyed command. Look in chapter 1. Now, we know what Jonah's famous for. It's the story we always hear. It's the thing that when we hear the word Jonah or we hear the word well, our mind immediately goes back to Jonah. Verse number 2 says, uh, verse number 1 of chapter 1, Now the word of the Lord came into Jonah, the son of Amittah, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. See, the number one reason why we extinguish revival is because we disobey God's commands. I think sometimes in Christianity, we have so mystified God's will that we don't even think it's attainable anymore. We think that God's will is a hard thing to find. We think that God's will is something difficult or God's uh, will is... Uh, something that we have to search for over a lifetime journey. That is not at all the case. Verse 1, God's word comes straight to Jonah. God says, Jonah, I need you to do this. I need you to go to Nineveh, and I need you to rise, raise your voice like a trumpet. You know why? Because he was a preacher. I need you to raise your voice like a trumpet and cry against that city, Nineveh, for their wickedness has come up before me. Jonah, I can't take it anymore. I need you to go preach. Jonah disobeyed. In fact, he went the opposite direction. You know what? Every time we disobey God, guess exactly the direction we head? The opposite one. We head exactly opposed to God's will for our life. You say, Brother Andrew, what's God's will for my life? You know what? He's given us his word to tell us a whole lot of what his will for our life is. He's given us His Word to be an instruction, to be a help, to be encouragement, to give us guidelines. And and, and I don't even call it a rule book. I call it a guidebook. It tells me things to do. It tells me things not to do. It tells me how to be a good man with integrity. I'm not even talking about the Christianity stuff. I'm just talking about be a good man. And the Bible has all of that in there. But see, the thing that distinguishes revival most of the time is Christians know what God commands and simply choose not to do it. The other night we were up at the hospital waiting in the emergency room. Hope I'm not dropping any news to anybody, but my sister had her baby, and we were up in the waiting room, and Benjamin was in the waiting room with us at about 12 o'clock. So he was tired, and and he was trying to play because everybody was still up, and so... Ben was running around. He had his little stroller, and he was 
trying to run over my foot with it, so I kicked him in the face. No, he, he was just playing around. He's having himself a good old time, just bin, 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 just playing. Now, in that waiting room were several chairs lined up against both uh, all three of the walls, but right here in the very corner is a large corridor. And at that corridor, it goes wood floor to tile floor. So it's quite easy to see where this room ends and where the aisle begins. Ben's in there playing around with his little uh, stroller, and he's having himself a good time. And he begins to venture off of the wood into the tile. And my mother and my father look at him and say, Now, Benny boy. You know, what it was with me and my sister. Get back here, you idiot! That was my mom. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, they, they were pretty stern with old Ben. They said, Ben, no, sir. No, no. Ben, don't you go out of this room. So Ben made a Yui. Yay, Ben, good boy. Way to obey. I thought that's what you did. But we praised Ben. And Ben's running around having fun. Here in a second, he gets to right where that wood starts. Where that wood stops and that tile starts. And he gets that stroller right there and they say, Benjamin, no, no. Makes a U-turn. You know, he kept going back to that same spot and will wait for them to tell him no. You see, the wood floor was contentment. The wood floor was blessing. That was permissible. That was acceptable. That was my parents' will for Ben. The tile floor was not. And Ben was having himself a good old time in the tile, but every once in a while, in the wood, but every once in a while he'd get close to the tile. And he would sit right there on the edge, and they'd say, No, no, Ben. No, no. You know where God wants us? He wants us back here. You know where we find ourselves more often than not? Right on the edge. And God the Father sits in heaven. No, no. No, no. You know what my commands are. You know what my will is for you. I don't want you to have to deal with the consequences of the decision you're about to make. I don't want to have to chastise you as a loving father would chastise his children. I don't want to do that. And yet we stand right on the edge of the corridor, don't we? We're never going to see revival if we keep living on the edge. Blessings over here. Blessing comes when we're nearest the Father. Blessing comes when we're doing what we're supposed to do as Christians and when we're being who we're called to be as Christians. It does not come over here does not come right on the edge of messing up and living for another day. It's not there. I find it unique how Second Chronicles, one of the greatest verses in all the Bible for revival, says, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. You see... It is a prerequisite for revival that we are not sinful. 
It is a prerequisite that we turn from our wickedness and turn to a loving Father. We'll never see revival if we as Christians look exactly like the world. You say, Brother Andrew, I don't know God's will. Well, do what you know. Read the Bible. Search it out for yourself. Hear the man of God speaking to you. And do what the Bible says. It does not come with some new idea or new form of theology. God has given us a perfect word, meaning complete. You do not need something else from Him. Most of the time we know when God says, no, no. There we stand right on the edge. You see, Jonah, he just simply disobeyed God. He knew God's will, and yet he chose not to do it. And what's sad to me is revival's waiting on him. You know, if he obeys God's word, revival's there. If he does what God says, revival's there. Here's the thought. What if somebody died in the three days that Jonah was in the belly of the whale? What if a, an older man in Nineveh passed away? See, if Jonah had obeyed God the first time, revival would have struck out. That man may have had a chance to hear the gospel. Truth of the matter is, the more we delay as Christians to do God's will, the more the world increasingly dies and goes to hell. When will we turn back to our Father? When, we, when will we begin to obey His commands? Not only is it disobeyed commands that extinguish revival, but secondly, disregarded callings. Look in verse number 8 of chapter 1. Now this is when Jonah's on the boat. And the sea is getting a little crazy. I mean, the waves are getting large. They don't know what's going on. In verse number 8, Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation? You know what Jonah's answer should have been? Uh, I'm a preacher. Um, but I'm kind of running from my pulpit right now. His calling was to preach. And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am in Hebrew. And these must have been hard words for Jonah to choke out. I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord and God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Say, Jonah, what do you do? What is it that pays the bills? Oh, I proclaim the truth of God. Hey, Jonah, you've been proclaiming any truth lately? Well, he kind of told me to be proclaiming today. <laughs> Funny story, Jonah was a called preacher of God, and yet he ran from his calling. You say, well, Brother Andrew, that really only affects you now, doesn't it? 
I mean, I hope you never run from God's call. That only affects you and your dad. I mean, y'all are preachers. That, that really only affects y'all. I think we're all called to be preachers. And so often we give Jonah such a hard time for everything that, you know, he was running from Nineveh. We give him such a hard time. Can I say he had good reason? You say, what do you mean? Well, Nineveh was the third capital of Assyria. Assyria was famous for their barbaric tortures. I'll read you a few things. First of all, this was a man, this was found in an Assyrian war bulletin in 1000 BC. This is what this man said. I destroyed, I demolished, I burned. I took their warriors prisoners and impaled them on stakes before their cities. Flayed the nobles, as many as had re uh, rebelled, and spread their skins out on the piles of dead corpses. Many of the captives I burned in a fire. Many I took alive. From some, of, uh, some I cut off their hands to the right. From others I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out their eyes of many of the soldiers. Another man said this, I slew 260 fighting men. I cut off their heads and made pyramids thereof. I slew one of every two. I built a wall before the great gates of the city. I flayed the chief men of the rebels, and I covered the wall with their skins. Some of them were enclosed alive in the bricks of the wall. Some of them were crucified on stakes uh, about the wall. I caused a great multitude of them to be flayed in my presence, and I covered the wall with their skins. I gathered together the heads in the form of crowns and their pierced bodies in the form of garlands. We give Jonah a hard time. Say, Jonah, God told you to do something. Why didn't you do it? I have the same question for you. The last words of our Savior were to go tell everybody about him. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20 says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Christ said, You go preach my name before the thousands. Well, Lord, I get made fun of. Jonah was scared of being burned and filleted alive. But there are no reasons good enough to disobey God. Jesus assured us, this world hates you, it hated me also. Why do we think telling others about Christ would ever be easy? I don't ever remember Jesus saying it would be easy but I remember him telling me to do it. You see, you have a calling. You are God's only plan. There is no plan B. God died for you, and now he has called you to tell everyone else about him. And yet we just disregard the call. And can I say tonight that I have no doubt there are men in this building that have been called to preach the gospel. I have no doubt that they felt it when they were younger. 
I have no doubt tonight that there are teenagers in this building that say, I've kind of felt something in my heart. I have no doubt God's called you to preach. Don't disregard that call. There's nothing more blessed than to be a preacher of the gospel. You go make your money, I see souls saved. There's nothing greater than making an impact on somebody eternally. Church, if we want to see revival, we can no longer disregard the call of God on our life to tell others about Him, to proclaim the suffering He endured for our salvation. We can no longer sit idly by hoping that others tell. We can no longer sit idly by hoping that others will hear somehow. You are the only method some will ever hear the gospel by. And yet we sit like a muted television, not helping anybody, not instructing anybody. Christian, we need to obey God's call, and we need to do what He's asked us to do. Thirdly, I want to tell you tonight, one of the reasons that we extinguish revival is because of delayed confession. Say, so what do you mean, Brother Andrew? Look in verse number 17 of chapter 1. The Bible says, and this is where the Sunday school story kind of comes out, verse number 17, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. Now if you take time to read chapter 2, it's a great prayer of confession. Jonah says, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell I cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou had cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. You see, if you continue reading, Jonah's confessing his sin before God. He's saying, God, I knew what you had told me to do, and yet I chose not to do it. Look in verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the well of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed. If you read how Jonah describes it, it sounds absolutely terrible. You can even see how... Uh, waves would overtake him. He even mentions that. He even mentions how he was wrapped in things while he was in the fish's belly. Sometimes we think that he was just off in a little corner there. You know, since God had prepared the fish, there's probably a lazy boy in Dish Network in there. Oh, Jonah describes it like it's the belly of hell. And yet Jonah was willing to endure the belly of hell three days and three nights before he asked for God's forgiveness. You say, that doesn't make any sense. Why would Jonah hold on to that that long? Why, why would he knowingly hold on to sin when he could get rid of it, receive God's grace, and not be in the belly of hell anymore? Why do Christians do it? Why do we live constantly in the presence of sin 
and every day partake in sin. And we're in the belly of hell, meaning we don't, we don't feel fellowship with God. We don't feel communion with God. We feel like we're cast out of God's presence because we've got sin in our lives. Why don't we just get rid of it? Why don't we just come to the throne of grace and lay it down before him and say, God, please forgive me. Your word promises that you will. God, forgive me. I've not done everything right in my life. But God, I'm asking for you now. Restore the joy of my salvation, as David says in Psalm 51. Lord, make my salvation like it was the day I first received it. Lord, make it anew. And yet we hoard our sin. We pile it on. Never confessing, never forsaking. The Bible says in 1 John, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The promises are there. We just don't do it. And the reason our prayers feel like they get no higher than the ceiling is because they're not. God can even shut off his ear to his child who's not right with him. How is the Christian that's hoarding his sin and hasn't confessed sin in years, how is that man ever going to be a part of a great revival? How could God ever bless anything that man does? Jonah could not partake of the revival until he confessed his sin. Three days it took him, but finally he received God's grace. Under the sound of my voice tonight, I guarantee you there are men and women who are hoarding their sin. Who in years have not confessed or forsook things that they know God does not allow. That they know God is not pleased with, that they know God does not receive glory from. They allow flesh to overtake them. I have no doubt under the sound of my voice there are people here tonight like that. To you I say, God says, confess and forsake and you'll receive mercy. Confess and forsake and you'll never have to deal with the guilt of it anymore. You'll never have to uh, uh, cover your tracks, so to speak. The Bible says the wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. You know why? Because they're righteous. They have nothing to be ashamed of. And yet we hoard our sin and we cover our tracks and we deal with the guilt daily. We can't see revival if we allow our sin to overtake us. Christ has freed us from the bondage of sin. Don't serve the weak and beggarly elements of this world. We have been made alive unto salvation. New creatures, the Bible even calls us. Don't forget to confess and forsake your sin. Finally, I want to talk to you quickly. We're almost done. This is one of the things that never gets spoken about in Jonah's story. And I'd say this is one of the reasons why Jonah... Well, I'll say this. This is one of the reasons why America never sees revival. Because of decreased compassion. Look in verse number 4 of chapter 3. Now, verse number 1, the word of the Lord comes unto Jonah the second time. Arise and go into Nineveh. Jonah, you know what I've told you to do. Preach that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. 
Now, Nineveh was an exceeding great journey of three days. Jonah began to enter the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse number 5 through 10, everyone in Nineveh repents. From the king to the children, they all get right with God. And they say, who knows? Maybe God will repent of the wickedness. Uh, Maybe God will repent of the punishment that he was going to deal out on us. Maybe God will save us. And he did. Now look in chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before thee to Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. You know what Jonah was waiting on? Fire and brimstone. Jonah was waiting for a Sodom and Gomorrah to take place in front of his very eyes. He'd heard the stories of Abraham and Lot. He had heard of those. I'm sure he he was excited. He said, I've got the opportunity to go preach. God's going to destroy you if you don't get right. Jonah had it all mapped out. He was going to go preach 40 days, 40 nights. At the end of the 40 days, he's going to sit up on the hill and he was going to watch God's hand of judgment. And yet these people got right with God. You see, Jonah didn't care about the people at all. That's why in chapter 4, God gives him a little illustration. He raises up a gourd, and and Jonah is pleased with the gourd, and then God makes a worm and eats the gourd, and and God says, do you do well to be angry that the gourd is gone? And Jonah says, yeah. And God says, you had no part in making them. Why are you angry? See, God was more concerned about the people than he was the punishment. What scares me a lot of the times in fundamental, independent, Baptist churches is how hellishly voracious we are against homosexuality. But adultery and fornication are rarely spoken of. What scares me is how it almost seems at times that we're more concerned about the punishment than the person. See, God hates sin, but he loves every sinner. Jonah had a decreased compassion. He just cared more about God's punishment on them than the people in the city. How much do you care about this dying world? I mean, does it ever keep you up at night knowing that there are thousands of souls that will die and go to hell before you wake up? Does that ever keep you awake? Charles Finney said this, 
There will be no revival when Mr. Amen and Mr. Wet Eyes are not found in the audience. Billy Sunday said this, When is a revival needed? When carelessness and unconcern keep the people asleep. You see, we may not have had a hand in creating every sinner in this world, but God did. And God so loves them, He loves them more than you can ever imagine. He loved them so much that He sent His Son to be cruelly tortured on a cross of Calvary for their eternal salvation. And God sits up in heaven and says, What are you doing to care for my, my lost children? What are you doing to tell them about my son? What are you doing? It's almost like you don't even care. Do we? The reason we see no revival is because we don't care anymore. We don't care when a sinner walks the aisle. We don't care if we know our neighbor goes and parties every weekend with no uh, remorse, with no guilt. They have no knowledge of Jesus as their Savior. We don't care. They're just our neighbor. We'll see no revival when we stop caring. God called us to care. Psalm 126, verse 6 says, He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing. I just feel, friend, that we need revival. And I'm not talking about in America. I'm talking about in our hearts. I'm talking about I need a revival. You need a revival. This church needs a revival more than you can even imagine. And when this church feels revival, then we'll worry about Joshua. When this church gets revival, then we'll start going to Mountain Valley and telling them of what God has done for us. We need revival so greatly. What is it for which thousands do thirst, but for which only a few people choose to work? What is it that some men work their entire lives and never get to see, while others are a part of incidentally? It is that which seems to grow increasingly farther away. As farther into darkness our homes, our country, and our churches stray. It is that which we have seemed to have have seen our last, all the stories of which have come and passed. Of course, revival is what I'm speaking of. When, when, when men, women, and children learn the depths of God's love. It's when sinners get right and saints get righter. And the gospel light shines brighter and brighter when people who are at the end of their rope look up and find that last thread of hope. An occasion for those who seem too far gone get a chance to return back to the feast that's waiting at home. An all-too-distant relic this so often seems. But the scripture, another story, does scream. Revival is not gone. It has not come and passed. God has not thrown this world aside or to outer darkness cast. But in his love and patience, he waits looking for Christians to turn and about face. If we humbly pray and seek his face, he has promised us that we can receive grace. Our land has not been forsaken. Our homes are not forgotten about. But God needs men and women to be more faithful and more devout. 
Revival is a reality, a thing that we can enjoy, a real possibility where God's power, His people can employ. We must submit to His ways and to His will and trust that our God is not dead, but all His promises are real. But the challenge at your feet does rest. Will you give God your all? I mean, your absolute best?